Now, let me ask one more time, because apparently you didn't hear me. How many of you guys are cooking out tomorrow? Raise your hand. There we go. Look at those hands come up. Look at that. That's awesome. Well, hey, I've got some good news for you. Got some good news for you. Um, the long national debate is over. Don't know if you saw this or not, but it was settled this week. The hot dog is a sandwich. Did you guys see this? All right, the hot dog is, is a sandwich. And, and just so you know, I have the specifics here. This is from um, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. Uh, they came out to try to just solve the problem because I know you've been arguing at home. Because there have been times, ladies, when you said, hey, let's just have a sandwich tonight. And your husband went out and fired up the grill. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. I said, sandwich. I mean, bologna or, or ham. And, and he looked at you and went, hot dog. Right? That's happened. Okay. Merriam-Webster has, has tried to handle this. says, we know that the idea that a hot dog is a sandwich is heresy to some of you. But given that the definition of a sandwich is two or more slices of bread or a split roll having a filling in between, there is no sensible way around it. If you want a meatball sandwich on a split roll to be a kind of sandwich, then you have to accept that a hot dog is also a kind of sandwich. So there you go. Hot dog is a sandwich, so you guys uh, enjoy tomorrow. Cook out all you want to. Makes everybody happy. Ladies can say, I just had a sandwich for my lunch. And guys, you can say, you know, you had burnt something. We, we haven't figured out exactly what hot dogs are yet, but at least we can say that hot dogs are sandwiched. Don't know exactly what's inside the pieces of bread, but hope you guys can go and, and enjoy. Have you ever argued over little things like that before? Whether or not a hot dog is a sandwich? You say, oh, you don't argue over things like that, right? No, you argue over whether you're going to do carpet or tile. That's what you argue. That's much deeper, right, for the level of arguments that, that you have in your household. Uh, you argue about are you going to stay in tonight or are you going to go out? Those are the kind of things that, that you argue over. You argue about where you're going for Thanksgiving. Will you go to the in-laws or will you go to your parents? You argue about where you're going to go for Christmas. Are you going to stay home with the kids or, or are we going to go to some family shindig that's going on? Oh, your arguments are much deeper than hot dogs, right? I mean, let's be honest about it, especially those of you who are traveling. If you have come in this Memorial weekend to visit with family or friends, let's just be honest. There have probably been some arguments that have gone on in your car already. And you wonder, how in the world did we get all upset about this? I mean, how did we get upset about what it is that we're going to, to listen to on the radio? I mean, dad was wanting to relive his days as a Bon Jovi air guitarist. And, and, and then mom was like, we are not going to listen to that. And then it just goes on and on because mom wants to listen to rap and the kids wants to listen to Jay-Z and it's just on and back and forth and all these different arguments that are going on. You're like, what's happening? Why is it that we get so upset over hot dogs and, and carpet and if we stay in or go out and what music that we're listening to? But you would think, you would think by listening to some of our conversations, it was the most important thing in the world. You say, but it's really no big deal. What if the walls of your house could talk? <sighs> Might be a scary thought for some of you. If the walls of your house could talk, what kind of story would they tell about the things that you get upset about? 
about the things that occupy the time that you spend in conversation. If the walls of your home could talk, what would people learn about you? Maybe you grew up in a home where there was a lot of argument. Maybe you grew up in a home where you at night had to put pillows over your ears trying to drown out the sound of what was coming from the living room. And you said, when I get married, I will not yell and I will not get upset like my parents did. But you yell. You said, when I get married, I'm not going to be as petty. I, I'm, not going, I'm not going to let little things bother me so much. But you know what? Those little things get all over you. You said, when I grow up, I'm not going to be passive. I'm not going to just, uh, just sit around and, and, and just watch the world go by in my family. I'm going to be active. I'm going to be involved. And yet, you look at your life right now and you spend more time on the lazy boy than you, you do actually with your kids. And what happened? The walls of your house tell a story if they could speak. And oftentimes, it's of broken promises. Oftentimes, it's a story of arguments over things like hot dogs that we wonder, where in the world is this, is it really coming from? I had a wedding that I was blessed to be a part of this last week. And Kristen Dalton stood up here on this stage and, and they promised to love each other till death do they part. And they were all smiles. And they were all giggly. And you could tell that they were ready to leave halfway through the ceremony, just like you guys were. You know, nobody that stands here and promises forever in the back of their mind says, you know what, I think in two years we're just going to be sick of each other. Nobody that promises forever says, you know what, in 10 years I want us to yell and scream and throw things. Nobody that promises forever says, in 20 years, I want our kids to be embarrassed by our behavior. Nobody says that. But then the unexpected happens in the story. We didn't know that the economy was going to take a downturn and, and he wouldn't be able to find a job. We wouldn't know that she was going to have to experience times of depression. You throw a special needs child in the mix that was unexpected. You didn't know there was going to be some unexpected attraction to a co-worker. And it just seems like that, that you were meant for each other and that, that this was to be. You didn't know that your husband was going to become so inattentive. And you didn't know your wife was going to reach a point where she didn't care anymore about whether she was attractive or not. And something in the story changed. Something in the story happened. And now you argue over hot dogs and carpet color, and where you're going on the weekend, and what music station you're going to listen to. I mean, if the walls of your house could speak, what would people end up finding out? Would it be disappointing? I mean, if people actually knew what went on in your car, if people knew what happened behind closed doors, would it be disappointing? Because you go through all this and you think that it's going to be all holding hands and it's going to be all holding one another as you fall asleep at night. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this idea of suburban myths and legends. We've been looking at different myths that are just there in our families when it comes to raising our kids. And, and I want us to start today looking at some myths when it comes to the relationship that we have with our spouses. 
the relationships that we have, husbands and wives. And there's this myth that just says, you know what, it's really no big deal. It's really no big deal the things that we argue over. It's no big deal the things that we, we fight about. It's really no big deal the different expectations that we ask of one another. But if the walls of your house could speak, I wonder if they would tell a different story. And so here's what I want to do. I want us to look a little bit at the life of a guy in the Old Testament by the name of David. Because he had this family that was just totally Game of Thrones. I mean, he had this family that was just, it, it was just awful. It was a train wreck. It was a dumpster fire. I mean, it was, you, you just think of any kind of expression you want to use to describe how bad things were in his relationships and with his family, and you could use that for him. So look in your Old Testament. Go to the book, uh, start off in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's there in your Old Testament. I promise just flip a little bit and, and you'll find it. If you can find Kings or Chronicles, you're going to be close. If you get to Proverbs, you've gone too far. This is right out of Scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says in verse 1, in the spring when the kings were off at war. But here's the deal. David doesn't go off to war. David stays home and others go out onto the battlefield and defend Israel. It's the season where the kings are off fighting, but David is not. Instead, he is home and he decides one evening that he's just going to go and wander around the palace. He's having a hard time sleeping. Too much food before bedtime, perhaps. And so he's up and he's walking around and he decides, you know what? I think I'll go up on top of the roof, get a little fresh air, look out over my kingdom, and I wonder what it is that I'm going to see. You see, it's the right time of day. And from the perspective of the palace roof, he can see all the other roofs. And here's what you need to know. David knows exactly what he's going to see when he goes up to the rooftop. He's restless. He gets up at night. He goes up to the rooftop. And on roofs all across the city, there are, there are bathing areas. And he looks out, and sure enough, he finds a young woman who has gone up on her rooftop to bathe. And so he sits there and he turns on the TV and he flips it to HBO and then through Cinemax and he knows exactly what it is that he's going to see. And there's Bathsheba. And she's beautiful. And he makes inquiries and he sins for her and he engages then in a relationship that God had said was not permissible. It was not expected. It was not to be for the king of God's people. It's not meant for any of God's people. But he doesn't care. Bathsheba is found to be with child and he sends for Bathsheba's husband. He's all fighting. Hopefully something can be done. Hopefully if the timing is right, nobody will know and everybody will think that if he comes home from the battlefield that the child will be Uriah's. But it doesn't work. Plans don't go the way David wants and so he decides that now he's going to have to have Uriah killed and so he sends him back out into the battlefield. He's got to cover everything up because he has to maintain the illusion that everything in his family is okay and that nothing is wrong. And when it comes to our families and marriages, when it comes to our children, I think we feel this pressure. We feel this pressure around us to make sure that no one thinks that we have problems. No one thinks that we have problems. But here's the thing. You know what? 
every single family that's sitting around you is messed up. Yeah. I mean, if you're visiting here, I'm sorry to tell you, we're, we got messed up people here. And, and, and if, you're, if you're sitting there and wondering who, well, who, who's messed up and you're looking around, they're looking at you, all right? We're messed up people. We have messed up families. We have messed up relationships and marriages. It's just the case. But we don't want anyone to think that there's any kind of a problem. And so we maintain this kind of illusion. So David sends Uriah off and he, he loses his life. And Bathsheba moves into the palace with him and she becomes his wife. The child that she bears ends up dying and it's just heartache and, and misery. And you say, how did it happen? I mean, how did all that, how did all that happen? And you think, well, it can't get any messier than that. It can't get any more Jerry Springer, but you're wrong. It can. And you keep reading and you find out that there's Amnon and he's one of David's sons. And Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar and David, David's daughter goes, Tamar goes and tells her full brother Absalom what has happened. And Absalom waits then for two years and he plots and he plans and he goes then and he kills Amnon. And as a result, there is war in the country between David and Absalom and ends with Absalom's death and it's just all in pieces. And you think, how, how does this happen? And how does this end up in the Bible? And how does this end up in the Bible talking about the guy that is referred to as the man after God's own heart? Well, there's this way of telling stories that I think you'll recognize. It's called reverse chronology. It's when you... It's when you go back in time to be able to tell the story, to kind of see how things have ended up the way that they are. And that's what I want us to do here just for a couple of minutes. And so I want you to turn your Bibles. I want you to go to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I want you to go here because oftentimes we look at this and we think, well, we think, well, something, something had to happen. Something had to happen that, 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 that made David get up, that, that caused all the problems that's going on. What, what, what is it that's going to be taking place? And so, just go to 2 Samuel chapter 6, and I want you to look at another story here, David. In this particular account, David's on his way back home. Everything seems to be good. Everything seems to be going well. He's married to the wife of his youth. Her name is Michael. And she's his wife because you might remember that David fought this giant Goliath. And, and the king of Israel that time was named Saul. And Saul said, listen, for anybody that goes out and fights this giant and is victorious, here's what I'll do. No taxes for the rest of their life and they can have my daughter in marriage. And David says, the taxes sound great, but can I see a picture of your daughter? Now, I don't know if that's exactly what he said, but... He should have, all right? I mean, her name was Michael, after all. I mean, we kind of... But she's the wife of his youth, and they're together, and, and you think that everything is going to be fine, everything is going to be good. And so what happens here in chapter 6, David is returning with the Ark of the Covenant that has been recovered, they're bringing it back, and David is partying like he's on Dancing with the Stars. I mean, he's coming in before the Ark of the Covenant, and, and he's dancing, and he's praising God, and, and his wife is watching all of this. And he's wearing about as much as those guys on Dancing with the Stars wear. 
And she is just getting a little bit embarrassed because that's just kind of what we guys do. We embarrass our wives in public, right? Isn't that kind of what we do, guys? Look at verse 20. He comes home and it says, when, Davis re- when David returned home to bless his household. So he's coming home. It's been a good day at work. He's in a good mood. And it says, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. And here is what she said right out of the gate. Now, I want you to catch the sarcasm. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not there, but probably said it. Disrobing in the sight of the slave girls. Disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. He comes in and he's had this great day. The people are celebrating. He's been celebrating. And the first thing that his wife does is attack him. And here's how David responds, because what happens? When you get attacked, oftentimes the way you respond, you're going to come back again with something else, right? So here's what David says. It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone else in your family. Now, it's not good when you go straight for the in-laws. Not a great marital strategy. He says, before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone else from his house when he appointed me ruler over the people. He said, it was before God that I was celebrating and it is before God that I will celebrate in the future. That's not how Michael saw it. And here's how the story ends. It just says that she had no children to the day of her death. In other words, that relationship, that marriage relationship was unfulfilled. In other words, she no longer spent any intimate time with David. And that's the last time you hear of Michael. It's the last time you read about her in in Scripture. And so you ask the question, it's like, okay, why is this in the Bible? Why do we have this story talking about this particular play-by-play? And here's the thing I'm thinking. I'm thinking that things could have gone so much differently if in this moment... That maybe if, if, if just a different attitude was present, if a different train of thought would have won out, if different words had been said, perhaps this moment would have been different. And if this moment had been different, then all of the other moments going forward would be different as well. I mean, what if David had included Michael in the celebration? What if Michael would have been encouraging to her husband? It was a great day for him. What if when he walked in that she complimented him on being able to bring the art back and talked about what a great day that it was? What if their criticism had been replaced with praise? What if instead of personal attacks, David would have said, you know what, you're right, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I disappointed you. I'm sorry that I embarrassed you. Would you forgive me? What if David would have fought for the wife of his youth with the same passion that he fought against Goliath in order to gain her the first time? How would that have changed the rest of the story? Because here's what I'm convinced of. Those little things that you and I in our relationship say, oh, they're no big deal. They're a big deal. They're a big deal. And we just kind of blow them off and say, oh, it's not that big of a thing. We just argue. We just fight a little bit. It's just hot dogs. It's just carpet. It's just music. It's just where we're going to spend vacation But I'm convinced that these stories of our marriage and families are written in the seemingly insignificant moments of our day-to-day life because there's an accumulative effect of these small decisions that ultimately they they just begin to add up. 
And it just gets more and more and more. Now, um, they don't know I'm going to do this to them, but um, the Polterowskis are sitting right over here. All right? This is what you get for sitting down front. By the way, if you notice Polterowskis, um, the cons moved. All right? They used to sit right here. They have moved over to this side today. Apparently, there was some kind of intuition that there was something that, that was going on. Um, I'm going to need your guys' help. I need, I need you to yeah, get the two of you. Okay, just come on. Husband and wife, come on. All right. Um, and bring some psalm books with you as you come. Just, just, just grab some psalm books. Grab, grab, no, you're going to need more than two. You're going to need more than, just grab some, grab some psalm books. Get them, get them out of there. Now, I, I want these guys to come up. Because I want to I use them in a way, hopefully, to better visualize what takes place in our relationships. Because we have this mentality that just says, hey, it's, it, it's no big deal. Yeah, bring those up over here. And, and just, just, just set these books. Just set them right there. Awesome. Awesome. Jeff, right here. Right there. All right. Okay, good. You guys just stand over there so everybody can see you. How long have you guys been married, by the way? 15 years. Let me check. He says 15 years. Is that right? Yes. All right. Yes. All right. I, I mean, you notice he's like 15 years, 15. We've been married 15 years. That, yes, that's it. All right. So, so these, guys have been, these guys have been married for 15 years. And that's awesome. And they stood before a congregation much like you. And they promised for better, for worse, till death do them part. And they had all those little googly eyes at each other. And, and it was all sweet and everything, right? Okay. And, and, then, and then here's what happens. Over time, in those 15 years, each one of these guys, because they're just like, they're just like you, okay? They're just like you. They're just like me. They, they begin to, here, hold that. Here you go. Hold that one. Awesome. They, they, they begin to, they begin to ask one another to hold certain things. And we're going to let these psalm books represent the things that they ask one another to hold. Now, now, it starts out just being, hey, would you hold my little idiosyncrasies? These little things that I do that, that, that when you're dating look all sweet and then that's all cute. And then all of a sudden you get married and it's like, who are you and when did you start doing that? Right? That's how it works. And, and, and it's light and, and it's no big deal. And, and then, then, but here's what happens. Then if you would just, just, just hand, no, hand that to him. There you go. Hand that to Jeff. Good. Here, hand him another one. Give him another one. Awesome. Now you need to hand one more. Now, all right, uh, over time, they just start handing off these, these, different, these different things, these different weights, these different, hey, I'll be home a little later tonight. Hey, um, is it okay if we don't have dinner tonight? Hey, I'm not going to be able to make it tonight. All these things, we say, oh, it's no big deal. It's, it's little things, and, and all of a sudden, it starts to, to add up. But, oh, but don't worry. Here you go. Now give that to her. Good. Awesome. Yeah. No, no, no. Don't. Give, give them to her. Get, get rid of some of your burdens. Give them to her. There you go. I mean, she's your helpmate, right? Here you go. Take that one. Good. Now give that to her, too. Go ahead. No, that one. Yeah. There you go. Give her that one. Give, give her one more. Awesome. Good. Now give that one to him. Good. Now here, give that one to him. All right. Good. Now. Now, now, remember, initially they start out and what? They've just got one little book, right? 
They just got one little book, but all of a sudden, all these different things that they start asking, here, I want you to, I want you to hold, hold this for me. I want you to hold my little, my little way of doing things. I, I want you to hold how I know I've got an anger issue, and I, I know I've got these problems, and all of a sudden you're saying, wow, have they been to counseling with you, and you're just laying all these out? No, I'm just using them as an example. Y'all don't have a lot of anger issues, do you? Good, awesome. They never admit it in public. All right, so they always, um, but, but as a couple, you have these anger problems and you, you have all of these different things that you say, okay, I'm going to expect my spouse to just hold this. And your spouse says, all right, I love you. And because I love you, I will hold whatever it is that, that you hand me. And, and so I made a list of some things. Again, it's not necessarily, it's not them, but I just want you to look at these two as they're, as they're holding these books right now. See if they're standing in for you. Maybe it is your hot temper or maybe it's your passivity. Maybe it's addiction to alcohol or maybe it's addiction to pornography. Maybe it's nagging and the criticism and your spouse just says, here, you just got to hold it and you just got to deal with it because you promised for better or for worse. And your spouse says, well, I love you. So, okay, it's going to be fine. And they say, I can handle the yelling and I can handle the late nights. Maybe it's workaholism and you didn't realize that your spouse was going to have to be gone all the time. Or, or maybe your spouse is just obsessed with their looks and they're always having to, to get the latest thing and they're always at the gym and it's always about them and you're wondering, what, when's it going to end? This really isn't what I, what I signed up for. And here's the deal with all these things. Over time... These books, they don't look that heavy. But the longer that your spouse has to hold whatever weight it is that you give to them, the heavier that it gets. And so they're great to stand up here right now and they're just holding this and, and everything looks fine. Everything is good. But here's what happens over time. If you guys will just drop them, it's fine. No, not, not easy. I mean, just drop them. No, you, you set them down better. Because think about it. Isn't that what happens in our relationships? Our relationship doesn't get set down lightly. All of a sudden, it all falls, comes crashing down, and we look at it, and we wonder, how did that happen? Because all we see from the outside is what? The crash. All we see is the crash. All we see is the affair. All we see is the depression. All we see is the divorce. All we hear about is the yelling and how I can't stand to be with you and I don't want to be in your presence anymore and we can't make this work and, and we just can't go on like this any longer. And on the outside, we're standing here and we're looking at this couple and we're like, but they look so great and everything's so good and yet at their feet, you've got this just pile that they've just dropped. How? It's because over time, no matter how much they said they loved each other, no matter how mentally, how much mentally they wanted to hold each other's weights, eventually it just becomes too much. Hey, thank you guys. Have a seat. Give them a hand. You see, it's just that those books have been carried for a long time. And we ask our families and we say, it's fine, it's no big deal. So here, you carry this for me. You carry me constantly being out of town. 
And I know that she says that we need to be more intentional and, and we need to spend more time together, but she's going to understand because it's no big deal. And I know that my husband can carry this weight of criticism and my negative spirit. And I know that he wants me to be more positive and I know that he'd really like for me to be more encouraging, but it's really no big deal. And the kids, oh, they're fine. It doesn't matter. They're resilient. They can carry whatever weights we put on them. But at some point, the mental determination to carry the weight is overcome by the physical exhaustion. And finally, it all just falls. It just falls. And so I want you just to think for a minute, what, what are those weights that you are asking your family to carry? What is it that you had your wife, your husband, your children, even your parents, and you've just said, listen, it's no big deal. You can handle this. It's part of the package. Let's wind this up by looking at chapter six here and, and maybe learning some better ways to handle the situation. Here's the first thing that I think we see when it comes to conflict in marriage and with the family. We need to identify what the real issue is. You need to take time to do this. I know it's hard in the heat of the moment, but you need to take time to identify what the issue is. Because Michael just lays into David as soon as he comes in. As soon as he gets close, all of a sudden she's just all over him. And David, he's immediately defensive. But what would have happened if David would have just listened? And if they would have just had this time to think about, wait a minute, what is at the heart of this? Why is it that she's getting so upset? Why is it that I'm getting so defensive and throwing her father up into her face? Maybe the reason she felt the way he was because she had this insecurity with David dancing around with all the slave girls. She needed to be reaffirmed. We need to identify what the real issue is in, in our relationships. Is the real issue that your husband has come home late? Or is it that you never know when he's actually going to come home? Or is it that when he comes home, he's always on his cell phone or he's texting or he's, he's emailing all the time and he just still feels like that mentally he's just at work? What is the real issue that you're getting so upset about? And secondly, find a good time and place for difficult conversations. Right when your spouse comes through the front door is not the best time. As soon as David walks in the door, Michael just lays into him. That was not the time and it was not the place. If she needed to express those things to him, should have found a better place to do it. David likewise should have had the maturity to say, you know what, listen, I understand that you're upset right now, but probably we need to do this a little bit later. We need to discover what the issue is and then we need to deal with it. It's important to find the right time and place. And moms and dads, let me tell you this, the right time and the right place is never in front of your children. The right time and not place and right place is also never when you think, well, they're just a little out of ear reach. I don't think they're going to hear this. Find the right time. Make time. Spend a lunch together. Get a babysitter. Go out for a walk. Get away from the house. Get away from the kids so that you'll be able to have the conversation in private because those ears are listening and those ears understand when mom and dad are happy and when mom and dad are sad and they understand when mommy and daddy are fighting and they don't like it. Here's the third thing, stick to the issue. David immediately when he's attacked, he expands and he starts bringing in the in-laws 
And that's never a good route to go when all of a sudden we're trying to talk about A and yet your tactic is to try to do a little subterfuge and you're going to talk about M or you're going to talk about P. Stick to the issue. Determine where things begin to fall apart and stay on that. And lastly, I would say this, try to stay positive. It's obvious that Michael didn't like David dancing around in his loincloth, but but maybe she could have found something encouraging to say to him. (laughs) Good moves. I mean, I don't know. Something. You know, a little dab. I don't know. I mean, he comes home and she just lets him have it. And and maybe, maybe I need to say this. David, if he's like most men, wants his wife to appreciate him and be impressed by him, to be even more impressed than the slave girls would have been. Men like to get praise. And so when he walks in and immediately she's sarcastic and critical, it just takes the strength right out of him and he just goes on the defensive All men want to win the hearts of their wives, but when it seems like that it just doesn't matter what they do, that it's never good enough, that it's just constant criticism, oftentimes men will just give up. And some of you know what this is like. Proverbs says to husbands, it says, it's better to live in the desert than to live in a home with a wife who likes conflict. So it's better for you. It's better for you if you live with a spouse that's just constantly critical, constantly wanting to argue, constantly trying to pick out all the bad things that you do. He says, it's just better to go live out in the desert. Just go be a hermit, man. He says, that's your life. Just go out there. Proverbs also says, it's like nagging and criticism. It's like a constant dripping. It's just this drip, drip, drip. You're waterboarding your husband, some of you. By constantly nagging, constantly criticizing, constantly throwing up in their face what it is that they do not measure up to. And it just doesn't work. Nothing drives a man to passivity more quickly than a wife who is critical, negative, and discouraging. And here's what happens. A wife is critical and negative, and her husband who is naturally inclined to want to win the heart of his wife, so there's nothing good enough that he can do. And so he tries, and yet it's just put up in his face how that he doesn't relate to some old boyfriend or some former husband or spouse or some father figure. He says, it doesn't matter what I do. It just doesn't matter. And so I'm going to do nothing. And so I'm just going to sit on the lazy boy and watch sports all day. It's discouragement and criticism that oftentimes leads men to make the poor decision to go down the route of passivity. And now look, while we're calling men, as the Bible would call them, to be spiritual leaders of their homes, we also need to call wives and mothers to be spiritual encouragers in their home. Because that is the role that God has laid out for you as a mom and as a wife to be a spiritual encourager to your husband and to your children. Michael just comes at David and she's critical and sarcastic and negative. But what would have happened if David would have listened and he would have apologized? Because listen, guys, the Bible tells us that husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus is a reconciler. He is the one that goes to. He is the one who pursues after. It is on us, men. It is on us as husbands to be the reconciler, to be the one that goes and says, I'm sorry. And some of you are like, well, I would say I'm sorry, but I didn't do anything wrong. That's not a good place to start. You say, all right, well, I did like five five to 10% wrong. Well, at least apologize for the five to 10%. Don't say you're apologizing for the five to 10%, but you are to be the reconciler. 
Men, you are to be the one that goes when you recognize that there's little things that are building up, that there are weights that are being held. Your responsibility is to be the one to go to your spouse and say, we need to make this right. You're not to be the one that goes and hides out in the man cave. You're not to be the one that goes and buries your head in the sand in your workroom. You're not the one that's to go to the garage. You're not the one that's supposed to hope everything gets better. As husbands, you are to be the one who reconciles. It's your job. You are the pursuer in this relationship. And I wonder what would have happened if David had taken a different action and if he would have said, you know what, you're right, and I'm sorry. You know, if our walls could talk, maybe they would tell stories of bitterness. Maybe they would tell stories of anger and disappointment. But, but perhaps it's time for our walls just to tell a different story. I mean, maybe it's time that the story changes because of God's grace and because of God's mercy. See, everybody sees when the weight falls. Nobody sees as it's being stacked up brick by brick, stone by stone, book by book, insult by insult. But God says, I can still work in that relationship. And the proof of it is found when you read over into, into Matthew, into your New Testament, where it says in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, Jesus is in, being introduced. And how is he going to be introduced? It says he's introduced as the son of David. He's the son of David. He's the son of the guy that had the affair. He's the son of the guy that, that had this fight with his wife. He's the son of the guy whose children killed one another, who committed terrible acts of immorality. Only God can do that. Only God can do that with such a mess, with everything that's falling apart. So God, would you do that for us just like you did for David? God, would you take the broken pieces of our family and would you put them back together for your glory? And God, would you redeem the messes that, that we have made? And, and would you help us see that these things that we say, oh, it's no big deal. It's just a few late hours. It's just a beer every once in a while. It's just a negative word. Would you, help us, would you help us see that it all adds up and it all builds up? And Father, would you help us repent and make changes before it all comes crashing down? See, it's not too late. It's not too late. And so I want us to take just a few minutes and I just want us to have a time of commitment. It's a time of brokenness maybe for some where we just come to God and we say, God, we're dependent on you and we need your help. We're holding a lot of weights right now. And maybe you've been saying for a long time, hey, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. And yet finally it's come to your understanding that it's a huge deal. And maybe things have fallen and maybe things have broken to pieces and, and maybe everybody has seen and yes, people at church know and people at work know and people at school know and people all over the community know. And, but you need to understand something, God also knows. 
And beyond healing your relationship, he wants to heal your soul. He wants to heal your spirit. He wants there to be peace where there's only been chaos. He wants there to be wholeness where there's only been brokenness. And so if you're in a position this morning in your relationship where things have either fallen apart or things are weighing heavily on you, we're going to be singing about how God can change your name. He can change the story that's going on in your household. And if you are that person that's dealt with this and and it's not where you want to be, it's not who you want to be, Can I encourage you this morning, don't be embarrassed just to come and say, I am broken. And let us hold you and let us pray for you. And let us give you what little encouragement that we're able to do in the name of the Lord. So that you can leave this place understanding that the myth that it's no big deal is not true. But that God sees you. And that God can help. And that God can change whatever the story is in your house. Will you come as we stand and as we sing?